0: Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Hello. We're here for our 12th episode and delighted to still be sponsored by Newcastle Law School. We'll talk more about our sponsor later on. But with this episode, the time has come. It's, I would say, the day of reckoning We, and I'm using the term we quite loosely because I'm not quite sure why I'm attending this podcast, but anyway, we are discussing a case on the topic of, yes, you heard correctly, good faith, the ultimate topic of contention. The case before us today is UTB LLC and Sheffield United. It's a high court decision, don't let that put you off, by Mr. Justice Fancourt, And as you'll know by now, we often sacrifice ourselves for our listeners. And there's no better example, I think, than this case, uh, where we've had to drudge through, what, over 120 pages, background and rambling. Who chose this case anyway? 138 cases, there you go. Uh, Maybe I just stopped at 120.
1: (laughs) 538 paragraphs.
0: Oh dear, yes, And and, and it felt like that as well. Well, we've limited ourselves here, though, and we have to tell this, I think we have to put this caveat in at the beginning. We've limited ourselves here to the contractual part, in particular good faith bit. I think that's what we're going to be discussing today. And we'll be ignoring all the additional matter of section 994 of the Companies Act and costs and all that kind of stuff. So the case, and it can be summarised a little shorter. The case is all about a contract which was aimed at Catapulting uh, Sheffield United into the Premier League of English football. Now, I have to be careful here, I know very little about football, so um, I'm going to stop at that. I think that's what I've gathered from it. The joint venture, that's what it's been called, from which uh, this dispute ultimately arose was an agreement between Sheffield United Limited and UTB LLC. And Prince Abdullah, a Saudi prince, invested £10 million in UTB which, through another company, another vehicle, owned then 50% of Sheffield United Football Club. Now a lot of ha- a lot happened between entering into the agreement in 2013 and then 2017 and later 2018, including a lot of further investments, uh, but no promotion to the Premier League at least in that time period. And by 2017, the relationship had deteriorated to the point that the owners of Sheffield United sought to end the relationship and issued a so-called call option notice. Now, a lot of manoeuvring occurred uh, from here, and and we'll probably talk about the details later on. But in in short, Sheffield issued the call uh, option at the low price of £5 million because they then assumed that UTB uh, would serve a counter notice to buy Sheffield's shares at that price. And why would they want that, you ask? Well, it would have triggered the exercise of the obligatory property call option. That's quite the mouthful, which would have been in Sheffield United's interest. However, before issuing the call option, UTB transferred 80% of its shareholding to another corporate vehicle and therefore avoided the property call option. Sheffield United now stood to lose quite a lot because they were going to have to give up their shares um, for quite a low price without the benefit they thought they were going to get. Sheffield United argued that UTB had therefore acted unlawfully from 2017 to 2018, contrary to the terms of the Investors Agreement, and they didn't act in good faith with them. Sheffield United also argued that other terms should be implied. We'll talk about those a little bit later as well, I think. So let's begin then by asking. The argument was that by the very nature of the agreement, um, it being a joint venture here, the term to act in good faith should be implied in law, not in fact. And this is a point that one might well be able to take from cases such as Yam Seng, although you could also take the theme that all football cases should have terms implied in good faith. But there we go. Severine, your thoughts then on should good faith be implied as a matter of law.
1: Haha, so here in here is the conundrum. I know nothing about football either, but I do appreciate the financial stake, which now I understand, reading the case, that actually Sheffield United eventually did get into uh, the Premier League, and I think, you know, I have gone through the 538 paragraphs. So I know that it was valued at something like 195 million, which was, you know, therefore the 5 million that you mentioned, you know, for the shares was a, a really, really good bargain. So, you know, the the financial stake is important uh, here to mention, otherwise there wouldn't have been uh, such a lengthy dispute. So whether it should be implied in law, this is linked to the argument that as a joint venture it was a, a relational contract and the pendulum between uh, Yam Seng as a very strong advocate, uh, Legat as he then was, for having a spectrum Of viewing contracts between that, not looking at it purely on a dichotomy basis of fiduciary relations and pure commercial contract, where the parties deal at arm's length, that we should have a spectrum of, we should view contract, commercial contract as a spectrum, and therefore the relational contract would allow us to view these and therefore to indeed have an implied obligation of good faith in law. Um, Yes, I am a a fervent advocate of this. I think the dichotomy is indeed too simple, as uh, Ligert said in Yamseng. But clearly here, the court, uh, fan court was not a fan or is clearly not a fan of good faith because he seems to have uh, used the last decision of Legat, when he was on the bench, Al-Nihayan as going back onto what uh, Yem Legat was saying... Uh, that therefore it's just a matter of implication in of terms, and therefore we look at uh, the normal rules. I will mention the, the the quote, which I'm sure we have all picked up on. A reasonable reader of the contract would consider that an obligation of good faith was obviously meant, or whether the obligation is necessary to the proper working of the contract. So here we go back to the normal manner of implying a term and that has nothing to do with good faith. That's uh, fan court's. View of it. I disagree with it. I completely agree that the notion of relational contract needs to be explained and tangled. Fancourt makes the point that just because it is a relational contract, that's not enough, or, you know, that the, 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 the matters of defining a relational contract, you know, the definition is not sorted. But I agree in principle that there should be a middle ground between fiduciary and normal commercial contract where we view the parties are dealing at arm's length. I think this is a backward or this is a, a dated way of looking at the way business is done contractually in the United Kingdom. So yes, there should be a possibility through the lens of relational contract to imply a term of good faith in law. My position is set. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, let's hear the other side. Okay,
2: then I'm going to have to try. I'm going to have to try and persuade you, Severine, (laughs) that you are in error. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here goes. Um, No, I disagree, Severine. The term implied uh, as a matter of law is, to put it neutrally, an ambitious response for the English common law. It wouldn't be orthodox at all in its approach. So I would agree with Mr Justice Fancourt completely, actually. And I think this case is more in keeping with the traditions of English common law than the Bates post office uh, line of argument, for example, that uh, Fancourt uh, Jay does criticise uh, rather obliquely, but I think he does. Let me try and persuade you thus. Um, The first point, I think, is to remember that terms implied by law are rather exceptionally done. And uh, this is because English law has a great hesitancy in this regard because it's the closest, I think, a judge gets to actually creating terms. So judicial interference if you like with the freedom of contract idea is most clearly articulated and, and argued whether a term implied by law and it's because of that uh, potentially disruptive impact on the principle of freedom of contract that english common law is very reluctant and hesitant to, to go that way so it is much more orthodox and conservative with a small c to say a term that you might simplistically label good faith is possible to be implied as a matter of fact but you're going to have to articulate that in in a great deal a high level of specificity as it were so simply saying good faith i don't think will cut it for english law and that's why i suppose uh, i would say that the council in this case uh, went to some efforts to articulate precisely what they meant by that so that's the first problem to an English lawyer, traditional old fashioned bod like me, the label uh, is apt to mislead and therefore it is dangerous. If you're trying to imply a term, you're going to have to do much more in terms of nailing it down as to what you mean. Because when we talk about a spectrum, for example, at one end, probably uh, an item that would most people would have no difficulty agreeing with, that is simply honesty as opposed to dishonesty in a criminal law uh, understanding of that word. I think probably in most contracts, relational or otherwise, uh, that's perhaps not a great uh, struggle for English law to see as an implied term as a matter of fact. But at the other end of that spectrum could be something like commercially unacceptable behaviour. And that we have great difficulty with an English lawyer would say, well, what the hell does that actually mean? Because if you're implying a term, that means you're imposing something into the contract, which is not currently articulated, not currently uh, legible, if you like, to read and to know and understand. So it's, 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 it's potentially quite an aggressive position to take. And therefore, you've got to nail it down with a great deal of precision. And and that I think is why Fancourt is 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 Honourable Judge Fancourt is trying to say uh, it would be safer. And what he's trying to say is it's more orthodox approach to say, okay, you can have a term implied as a matter of fact, but you're going to have to be able to say that in order to make this contract function workability, it needs to be there, although it's not been articulated. Or alternatively, it is so obvious that any reasonable reader of the contract, the terms that are written, would say, yes, it is bound to be there. So there's the basic test for implied as a matter of fact, is this concept of workability or obviousness. And that's the way, the mechanism that traditionally English common law would would operate on in terms of implying a term. And that's why we use this jargon, implied as a matter of fact. That's entirely acceptable in terms of English law. I have no difficulty with that as a matter of principle, implying a term that you might simplistically label good faith using that mechanism. But you are going to have to articulate it with a high degree of precision as to what you mean when you use that simple label, good faith. It's not enough. So do you mean uh, an obligation as to transparency, disclosure of certain information, uh, an obligation to uh, be open in some particular way? Um, that That's fine. But simply good faith, I have difficulty with that. And so I can see exactly how the judge in this case has difficulty with that.
0: But wouldn't we be able to say, <clears throat> I mean, we may well say that there's no, even if there was the implied term, that there may not have been in breach of that. And we can we can look at the fact specific part. But I think we're still in, on the principle of whether we should have good faith implied in law. And on that point, wouldn't, wouldn't it be easier to say that this type of contract, a joint venture, requires a certain amount of unspoken un- unarticulated input um, from the parties like in the i saying that you just need to be honest that you need to or in other case as you've just said the example of you need to disclose something shouldn't that be the norm? and then we can say and you know because it's implied in law and then you say well unless the parties of course don't want that. And then the parties can get rid of that. But generally, a joint venture... I mean, the whole point, you know, it's in the name. It's a joint venture. You, you need people to be honest. You need to be people to be open. Whether they breach that here, I think, is another question. Because the argument could be that the first issuing of the call option in itself doesn't sound to me to be particularly honest. Well, then
2: you get into a further problem as to the duration, if I can express it that way, the duration of this supposed obligation. At what point will it end? Could you talk about performance? Um, But that's a point that I think Judge Van Court makes. He's saying, okay, it's a joint venture in that very sort of loose sense, but it's actually also at the back of this is a power struggle between two quite powerful dominant people and probably at the end game is only one of them can win. So it's joint venture up to a certain point, but you know that point comes at which actually they are in contest with one another. So this obligation of good faith, however you end up trying to articulate it with a degree of precision, which an English law can hack, it will have a natural end point and, and so that's a further point. You know, had the relationship got to a particular point where any supposed implied uh, obligation as to good faith, uh, as I keep saying, with some degree of specificity, more than that, has
1: naturally come to an end. Well, it comes to an end when the contract comes to an end. So I think the. So... Well, no,
2: I don't think that can be right, can it? Well, okay. because of the nature of this this arrangement. Uh, there was a point at which the relationship had broken down effectively on a, a sort of human level. The date at which the contract ends might be a much later point. I, I have trouble with this duration idea as well.
1: Well, we'll So I, I wanted to reply to, to you Maggie but also to point some of the things that Tim have said has said which are important. So I completely agree with you, Maggie, that the problem at the moment and I think Fancourt could have actually developed so much more. I mean we have 538 paragraphs and only what it seems, you know, very few pages on good faith and not all the yes he does criticise uh, bait but he doesn't go into details and so effectively uh, on that it's a little bit disappointing because what you have said Maggie a a, a brilliant description of the conundrum uh, what I have called uh, elsewhere the vicious circle so precisely because at the moment we are uh, or English law in the way develops, there is a schism between what seemingly the parties want. So one of the points that Van Court makes is that well, there is no need in any case because he's quite reluctant to imply a term here because the contract is very very detailed. As he points out, they have included good faith uh, and therefore that is an indication that therefore there was no need to imply a further term because they had clearly thought about you know the the instance. But so that's the one thing. So, the point that you make, Maggie, that uh, there is no, it's not clearly articulated. And I think that's where the issue comes in the vicious circle. Because the courts do not quite know how to deal with an, I think, Tim, you mentioned the unarticulated element. And I think that's the beauty about relational contract. So relational contract to draw on to Professor Mitchell uh, in Birmingham, and lots of other authors, you know, it allows a way to express what the contract doesn't necessarily say. So the relational element is an important conduit to bring in good faith, because it would allow the court the vocabulary Allow the courts to articulate what is currently not possibly not possible to be articulated precisely because of the values upon which contract law is written and has used for a long time. So that is where the vicious circle, they don't have the vocabulary. They don't know how to use it because the doctrinal element is not there. And so therefore the, the courts go back to, well, we can't do it. And so that creates, you know, what, have argued elsewhere you know a vicious circle and so therefore here we go on so therefore we don't need good faith so that's the first point that if you look at construction contract if you look at employment contract there is the notion of the mutual trust and cooperation so what you have said Maggie is uh, good faith is actually very often used in the yanseng in the debate as uh, an excluder of bad faith. So yes, of course, dishonesty is a, an obvious thing. So don't do anything that would be, as you said, Maggie, uh, uh, commercially unacceptable. These are elements which can be easily understood. But I think what... Yes, but can I just chip in at that point? Commercially
2: unacceptable, that I have said, is inherently vague and uncertain. If you sort of run with this idea for the moment, how on earth would a court... Decide what was commercially acceptable or unacceptable. Is this a matter of expert evidence? Because it would not normally be. Uh, Expert evidence would normally be things to do with technical matters outside the expertise of a court. So how are you going to prove what is commercially acceptable or not? Because a judge is not really geared up to make that sort of judgment. They're not naturally
1: commercial people. And yet... Uh, how, how, How are they to judge? And yet they don't have any problems to look at the reasonable expectations. So what is commercially acceptable would be defined...
2: But it can't be reasonableness, though, can it? It can't be reasonableness because the basic test of any implied term is reasonableness is... Necessary but not sufficient. So that's not gonna cut it as a test. You can't say to the judge, you a judge, must decide commercially acceptability from a reasonableness angle. That that does not fit with the English common law idea of an implied term at all. A judge would say, Well, it has to be reasonable, but it needs to be something more than that. What is the something more for commercially acceptable?
1: That it's that it is, that it is according to the expectation based, again, and we go back to what is defined into the contract, but more than that, the unarticulated, what is not said into the contract, that is the standard and that standard is not the, the courts when, and I know we imply terms and, uh, interpretation are different things, but they are nevertheless linked. And so in relation to interpretation of contract, the courts do not have any problems, uh, in looking at the commercial common sense of the parties. That's something more. So I also. But that's the very low level threshold, isn't it? Yes, it, it doesn't. A commercial common sense
2: just means. It's workable. It doesn't mean it's fair or reasonable. Do you see my problem? That this idea of good faith and commercial acceptability is coming so close to this idea of what is reasonable or not, uh, as to uh, come so far away from the English common law perspective of an implied term. Reasonableness is, is not the test. It's something much more than that. So, what is the more?
0: But the reasonableness angle is what comes from so as as the barrier to to an implied term. But the implied term, if it's implied in law, is not related then to the reasonableness. So, the reasonableness test is a second stage of the test, as it were. So yes, but the... do you
2: see a term implied by law is close to a judge making policy policy law what is reasonable from a social uh, background for example you know that uh, the the employer employee obligation of fidelity and good faith uh, uh, in trust and confidence between an employer and employee that is the closest thing we have to the common law creating a term that is not there and, and so can you see Uh, Judges will be very hesitant to use the mechanism of an implied term as a matter of law because it is so uh, aggressive, if you like, in terms of judge creating a term. It is much safer uh, ground, if you like, conservative with a small c, as I've explained it, or orthodox. For the line that Fancourt J has taken to say, uh, yes, it's possible to have a term implied, but you're going to have to do it as a matter of fact. That that is much much safer. Because it is still, therefore, the contract created by the parties, not as a matter of social or other policy uh, imposed on the parties by the common law, by the judge doing it. That That is dangerous territory. You, you can do it in very isolated instances. So the fiduciary obligations as a matter of policy, the law says it must be this employer-employee. The law says it must be this. But it's it's very aggressive, if you think about it, for the common law. That's my basic point. It is much safer technique to use the implied by fact. Uh, and it's not a great hurdle or difficulty to the parties. In fact, it's probably easier to use that mechanism but you know your your point about the um, putting something in that's not been articulated by the parties. You know that there's been enough discussion about good faith now since Yam saying for practitioners. Uh, who are crafting these agreements. This is £10 million, for Christ's sake. They would have had some expensive lawyers on this. They've had enough chance, as it were, to think, okay, this is a wake-up call, chaps. We need to make it very clear by the express terms where there is to be some aspect of good faith, and equally, where there is not. So Fancourt makes the quite powerful point, I think, to say that the lawyers here had thought about good faith because they had put certain terms of that nature into the bargain. And the areas where they have not done so, we must assume that that's intentional. Yes.
1: And this is where the implication in fact, or that's where the argument to say that when it is a very detailed agreement is, I agree, difficult to overcome in relation to the implication in law. So I I do see that, but it's a tiny bit... Or implication by fact is the point I'm,
2: I'm trying it it's shutting yes. the door on yeah. that argument because the court will say the parties have thought about this and decided no and and, in, and freedom of contract big deal for english law we must respect that decision and de
1: you know the court of appeal clearly said that you know once it's easy in the contract you know you can't imply another one because for, for the same reason but but it's a little bit lazy it it is a little bit of a lazy argument so what what it is you asked what it is, what is commercially unacceptable. So here we go into the realm of good faith does not only demand of one party to exclude bad faith or not do anything that is unacceptable, not, you know, refrain an, an excluder of bad faith as it is called, as it is referred to in the States. But it is the cooperation. it is the doing something that is going to be necessary for the purpose for which the contract so that doesn't negate uh, so again Fan court could have gone into a lot more details about Al Nehayan, uh, Justice Legat's uh, last decision on the bench, where Legat did try to articulate what it would mean precisely. And because looking at cases on the fear that you have articulated, um, uh, Maggie, by the, by, by the judges as to, well, what it means exactly, there is a, a fear that it would be contrary to some of the traditional position of the courts to consider the, the the parties at arm's length, that it would mean giving up of a, a financial advantage and other... Yes, yeah, so, so, so
2: remind me, but in, in Sheikh Tanoon Lega LJ was saying it, it's not any long-term contract, but one that requires collaboration. Yes. That's the word that he yes. used, yes? And, and he says that you must
1: operate in a way that respects the spirit and objectives of of yes, that. of the contract. So effectively, what Legat does in Al-Nehayan is to say that good faith is not necessarily owed to an individual parties, but what the parties have to uh, respect is the purpose of the contract. So that doesn't mean they cannot act for their own self-interest. That will never go away. And I I, I think that's where the fear comes uh, from the court, that suddenly it means a party cannot act for their own commercial self-interest. And so what Legat tried to, or what Legat articulated in al Nehayan is the good faith is owed to the project, to the, the the purpose of the contract. So what unites the parties? And so as long as a party acts in a manner to cooperate and to help the other party get to the purpose of the contract, then that doesn't necessarily mean they can't act for their own self-interest as long as they have a good commercial reason. So that is that part that I completely agree with you has not yet been completely articulated by the court but because the court constantly go back into oh well we don't have the tools so therefore uh, we can't articulate uh, and
2: couldn't you say though severine that this very low level obligation if you like not to sabotage the agreement yes. the contract uh it is implicit in all contracts but it's such a low level yes, thing I mean, it, as to as to go without well, saying it, Uh, but it's articulated or has a remedy, which is the more practical way of looking at this, through some other specific breach.
1: I think that's one of the things that I have been arguing with good faith. Good faith doesn't need to be this frightening thing. I think what, so if you look at how good faith has been received by the various court posts, Legate and yanseng we've had, you know, on the one hand, those who have embraced it, and on the other side, those who have, you know, looked at it in, in fear. And the theme that is running through those who have embraced it is it is nothing to be feared. It doesn't mean it's going to completely ruin uh, the IDs upon which contract law are created. So indeed, it is based on the purpose of the contract and indeed not sabotaging. So allowing the other party to get the fruit of the contract, not in a underhand manner. So I think what is being, for me, the underlying ID is opportunistic behavior is not possible and that is a theme that already exists in English contract law
2: but what does that actually mean though
1: so opportunist behavior so if you have uh so the, the the contract aims uh, must be respected by both parties. And if one party, as they seem to be here, you know, what uh, the way team has uh, explained the facts. Potentially here, did the Sheffield United try to make a quick buck by effectively trying to get something at a really really low price, uh, and that has not been explored here, uh, and perhaps could have been done uh, in explored in more details. So that is the contract set out a certain uh, a purpose, a certain expectations, and if one party tries to get away from these expectations, that's when that is not going to be allowed for good faith.
0: And I do think there is a difference there. Actually before I think do you know who always acts in good faith? Sorry? Ah oh, I know I know where he's going now, severing <laughs> Well, <laughs> our sponsor, Newcastle. <laughs> sponsor.
2: <laughs> always acts in good faith. Well done then. We are very grateful as All ever. Right.
0: Thank you. Well, would you like to be at the forefront of law and technology? Well, Newcastle Law School is now offering a brand new LLM in emerging technologies and the law. To find out how law, economics, politics and society intersect in a digital world, visit ncl.ac.uk to find out more. Thank you, Newcastle Law School, for sponsoring Unpacking Contract Law. I'd like to come back to that point. I don't think every contract is built around the purpose of the contract. Um, and doesn't have to be, and shouldn't be. Um, I'm going to give a really bad example, and you're probably going to be able to unpack this, but it's the best I can come up with on the fly, is a delivery company that notices that I'm not in, they have the, the obligation to deliver to my premises. Now,
2: this is beginning to sound like a problem that Tim has No, had. I
0: haven't actually. No, no, I'm thinking of a, a big commercial one, not, okay. not me personally. This, this is, you know, big commercial okay. yard. They've been right. told, deliver it to the yard, that's it. They don't see anyone there. They drop the pallet in the middle of the road or in the middle of the access area, which means no other other lawyers could get in. Generally, contract law would be fine with that. The whole point was to drop off the pallet at at the end destination. There's no obligation to to. To put it somewhere, you know, protected, or do anything else. If the spirit of the contract was different, if we said this was a joint venture, oh, you'd have an obligation on. to hang call on, or, or let them know that it's there now, no, or protect uh, it, or I, put a covering I, I over it. I don't think
2: English English common law would have much difficulty with a term implied as a matter of fact, uh, either on obviousness or on workability. Uh, the delivery has to be somewhere where the item. Uh, is safe, won't cause a uh, hazard to traffic, as a minimum, as an implied term. I, I don't think you need that's reasonable. Um, good or faith not, that that's reasonable,
0: not necessary.
2: No, 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 no. It's not. It's not reasonable. It's uh, workability or obviousness. Either of those, I think, would probably work in the example that you give. Uh, if you're if you're delivering, it must be into the yard, not on the roadway, for example. Uh, and it needs to not be causing a hazard to travi- traffic. As a matter of obviousness uh, or, or in terms of workability, more, more obviously, if I had to, to put my na- my name to a, a point, I would say uh, as obvious. So
0: the Moorcock kind of argument of,
2: yes. Yeah. So, you know, English law has been working on this for 800 years. And, and here's the problem. English law tends to be quite piecemeal, if you understand what I mean by that, in its responses to bad faith. I think English law is pretty geared up to police bad faith. It's just faith. Lord Bingham all over. It's isn't it? just a yeah. It's just yeah. Uh, what what does he call it? Functional equivalence. That's his phrase. Functional equivalence. It's just a different way of tackling a similar sort of problem. Uh, for example, the the various uh, forms of estoppel. Okay, it's not contract law. Now, the branch of law, been developing for 500 years. It's naturally geared at what we would now call unconscionability. And perhaps a French lawyer would use the phrase good faith. Fine. Happy with that. (laughs) Different way of tackling tackling the, the same sorts of problems. So all I'm trying to say is we have a mechanism for dealing with bad faith. We're just not that clued up to deal with it. Uh, explicitly as imposing an obligation of good faith. For the reasons that I've said, that the lack of transparency as to what this means and the potential intrusion into the bargain that the parties have made, particularly if you're arguing that this is so as a matter of implication of law rather than uh, for workability or obviousness as a matter of fact that the parties must have assumed to have taken on board these points. Might we be able to
0: argue the other way, though? Might we be able to say that actually there is a term implied in law in joint venture cases? But in this case, the fact that the contract was so sophisticated, so obvious, and and even maybe the fact that both parties were, were not exactly acting in the very best faith, let's put it that way, actually just excluded good faith. So in other words, we, we have and an, an, we, we do have the general implied term here, but actually it was excluded by the facts of the case. In other words, what I'm trying to push us towards is actually looking at the facts of the case, whether we think this this could ever be a good faith case.
2: Well, I suppose Fan Court Jay is, is hinting at this when he says he said at one point there has been a tendency in recent cases. So that's the uh, the criticism of Bates to simply ask the question, is this a relational contract or not? And he's saying that is by its nature not a very helpful way of, of tackling these things because it's apt to mislead. What do you mean by a relational contract? And there are, there's a very wide spectrum, I suppose, of contracts that would fall into that very loose umbrella term and there's, there comes the problem. There may be some contracts where the relationship is very close. You might even say, as was argued in this case, a quasi partnership, uh, dressed up using the trappings of limited companies. In other words, they were very co- close and personally very close. And it was dependent on individuals, not legal entities. So there was two human beings that had to work closely together. I can see that in that very narrow area of types of contracts, yes, it's going to be far easier than perhaps other types of commercial joint ventures for English law to say, as a matter of fact, we can see that some articulated form of good faith is an implied term if the parties haven't actually explicitly said it as an express term. But there are other types of contracts where parties do have to work together, they're probably not individuals, as the ones that I'm thinking of at the other end of the spectrum. They're limited liability companies. It's not a quasi uh, partnership, as was rejected in this case. Uh, although you might say they, they're in a joint venture, that joint venture only goes so far. That was the point I was trying to make that 20 minutes or so, that in essence, this is a context a contest or power struggle for control over a football club and so this joint venture labeling uh, only goes so far you know yes the court that, that that is my difficulty
1: yes I mean it is it is clear because um, so uh, in in Bates um, uh, the judge whose name escapes me tried to define relational contract so it, it is true that until uh, we can define relational contract, it is true that, you know, there is, there is a problem, but relational contract and good faith. So I want to go back to some of the things that uh, you've mentioned earlier that English law doesn't have a problem with good faith as. I, I go back to my expression, the excluder of bad faith. I agree with that. And, and this is a trait of uh, the way English law developed piecemeal. And in the same, we we can see it in the same manner. There is no obligation to disclose, but we have so many exceptions to the non-disclosure that that is the way English law has developed. There is no positive obligation to do something, but it's always as what not to do so the and and this is because english law it, it's it's so that the law develops in line with the uh, rationale of certainty and freedom of contract and all that but so here the argument is that can we go beyond this limited view of good faith as what not to do and this is the difficulty of what and you go back to what you were saying earlier, Maggie. What exactly would it mean? So cooperation. So I've tried to articulate that in, in relation to uh, Al Nehayan that as long as the parties do not. So, continue to help each other cooperate and and achieve what the contract aim has done and do not do anything just for their sole interest, which is not in line with commercial expectation and the contract purpose as defined. So, that doesn't necessarily change the whole ethos and the whole Basis upon which contract law uh, has been, as you said, developed in the last, you know, so many hundred years. But it then allows to articulate what a positive obligation of good faith, rather than simply what not to do. The link would help to define what it would mean for the parties. And this is where the relational aspect comes in, and I go back to what Tim said about the non-articulated. I mean, Legat uh, and uh, Fancourt quoted him on saying that not everything can be included into the contract, and this is this what is not said into the contract, but can never be can nevertheless be seen although not expressly articulated, so...
2: okay, I agree with that. If it meets the test of either it's obvious or it is necessary to make the thing as articulated workable. If it can meet either of those, then fine. I don't have any problem with it at all. That's exactly what I think Justice Fancourt is saying but you've got to meet one or other of those hurdles. So
0: do you agree with Yam Seng then? No. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
2: Part of Yam Seng, where uh, uh, Lord Justice, or Lord Leggett as he is now, is saying, as a matter of fact, one can imply a degree of specificity other than using the phrase good faith, if it meets the obviousness test or the workability, that bit of the judgment, yes, I agree with. But then when he says, in the alternative, I would also have found a term implied as a matter of law, that's where I have a problem. That's where uh, Justice Banco has a problem. That's where the Court of Appeal in mid-Essex has a problem. So it's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> there are some of us out here have a problem with that further step. And And, and you might say to me, Or a listener might say, what the hell does it matter? If it's either implied as a matter of fact or implied as a matter of law, who cares? Uh, And and the answer to that is, I think, implied by fact is doing far less violence to the terms as they have been articulated. uh, Implying a term as a matter of law is to a lawyer much more aggressively uh, altering uh, the bargain. And that's why there is a, a, a tension, if you like, or a, a sort of inbuilt struggle, which an old fuddy-duddy English
1: lawyer like me has, has a, you know, that is a bridge too far, as it were. Damn, I thought actually we agreed for a split second. The split TV second. Might have to do- <laughs> You might have to
2: do some on the possibility we're agreed on the possibility of a term being implied I agree that far so the where we don't agree is the nature of, of it I am saying it has to be very specific that labelling good faith as you use the word lazy, Severin, I'd, I'd use it back to you is lazy <laughs> in terms of English law. What do you mean by that? You must
1: articulate that with much And yet I of go position. back. You, you see, this argument <laughs> that uh, English law doesn't—you uh, know—it needs to be precise. Everything, yeah. you know, the UCTA, you know, about, you know, on on whether a term uh, is unfair or not, you know, the, the the criteria are very vague. So I don't know oh, why. But that's different.
2: That's different. Oh, why? Unfair Contract Terms Act Is statute say yes, but that statute, that's supreme, if you like the the division of the powers and all of that jazz. uh, The law, in terms of Parliament, may say judges you have the power to decide whether an express term that the parties have agreed is unreasonable and unfair or not. That's Parliament giving judges the power. That is fine. I have no difficulty with that at all, because that's the way our system functions. But it is an entirely different argument to say the judge may decide what is reasonable, commercial, acceptable behaviour, although the parties have not themselves articulated that. By the root of implied by a matter of law, that is an entirely different game.
0: Oh. <laughs> oh that's opened up a can of worms there
2: <laughs> so I think all, all that point of difficulty you know the last 50 odd minutes or so the the only real point of difference I think between Severine and I is that uh, you would uh, be much happier if I can express it that way with English law recognizing the possibility of a term which we might label good faith but I think you'd agree with me it has to be articulated. With more precision but uh your stance i think is it can be and should be in some situations implied as a matter of yes. law so you're much more in keeping with uh lord leggett's obiter comments in yamseng and the way in which the judge approached it in bates and the post office and I am at the other side of the uh, approach, as it were. I am much more with Fancourt J in uh, the Sheffield United case in saying, OK, it's possible, but as a matter of fact.
0: And you've yeah. managed to articulate it in much less paragraphs, much fewer paragraphs. Um, I don't
2: know. <laughs> well, I don't know, because we've been <laughs> arguing about this for 50 odd minutes. This could well Shall be we? 500
1: <laughs> paragraphs. Shall we stop here? We have got a truce. We agree on something.
0: We're, we're, we're closing <laughs> that. I was just going to throw another one in, but then looking at the time, we might not be able to get to that. Okay, I'll, we'll throw it in anyway, just a quick one. To what, do you think, to what extent do you think, if we look at Bates, for example, one party was clearly quite reliant on the other one and clearly quite reliant on the other one not to subvert the, the contract. To what extent does that play a role when we then look at this case and think, you know what, they both knew who they were get. you know, who they were contracting with and how they were getting into this actually they weren't that reliant on each other you know they were all pushing for their own agenda they were all, they all had their own ideas of where things were going um to what extent does that play yeah, a role i can
2: see the bates case as as much closer uh, in terms of a very close mutually dependent relationship if i can express it thus because you've got Uh, sub postmasters and mistresses who in any other walk of life the English law would label as consumers. Uh, It just happens to be that they were doing this for their uh, only form of income in, in many instances and they were wholly dependent on the veracity, genuineness, transparency, uh, honesty of the post office and their IT system. So, uh, I have no difficulty at all in that setting saying english law uh, would imply as a matter of fact between those parties it is it's it's very close to employer employee and in a sense in terms of legal smart drafting in any other setting that would have been an employer employee relationship it's just that it was dressed up as independent Uh, 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 contractors for tax reasons. But in any other walk of life, English law would have said they were wholly reliant on the post office and they were as near as damn it employees. So that is much closer to the implied by law I will accept uh, setting. It is only by clever drafting, clever bit of lawyers, if you like, acting for the post office, that these documents were dressed up as not being employer-employee. Now, English law is, is on to them, if you like. Uh, and, and so I would say would have no difficulty in policing by an implied term as a matter of fact that there was on the facts a high degree of mutual dependency and very one-sided arrangement. The sub-postmasters and mistresses were wholly dependent on the IT system, which the post office were responsible for, were wholly dependent on the honesty and truthfulness of everything that the post office said to them about flaws or otherwise in that system. And the post office repeatedly lied to them. Uh, And and that is uh, uh, right in the area of bad faith in terms of what English law would recognise. So I have no difficulty at all with what happened in Bates. It is simply, if you like, a lawyer-like argument here as to the way in which that is being uh, explained. So implied as a matter of law, I, I, I still have. I, I, I'm sorry, Severin, I, I've I've I truthfully have listened to your argument over the last fifty minutes, and you are in good company with Lord Leggett. <laughs> and you know
1: who, who am I to criticise either you or Lord Leggett? But I'm afraid yes. I am. It, a... I mean, everything that you've said, Maggie. I I agree with, and these therefore goes so. In a way, by throwing a, what you've thrown, Tim, you've just, you know, highlighted the difficulty of, and, and the need for further work to be done on what we mean by a relational contract and what we mean by, so here we have two extremes. So I completely agree, uh, with you, Maggie and Tim. I'm sure you would agree of the notion of dependency, you know, because this is something we're working on. Uh, the, um, there is a spectrum once again of relational contract and so it yeah. is absolutely true that in relation to relational contract there is a lot more work to be done to decide what are the factors that dictate a contract to be regarded as relational. But I think some of the issues that you have highlighted, the notion of relational contract in Bates was argued to indeed show that dependency, that there was a weaker party. Yeah,
2: yeah. So, yeah. I would say to you, if you're doing research on this, Bates is a paradigm case of what I would call a quasi- Employer-employee. Yeah, so that, that is your sort of your, your yeah. sort of classic area yeah. why,
1: why, uh, yeah. But the way I argue good faith is not necessarily so clearly the the post office masters and mistresses Were the weaker parties for want of a better word yeah. for want of a generic uh, word and therefore needed protection and therefore the good faith obligation of cooperation, which was implied in, you know, that that's the cooperation. Uh, it's not just an excluder uh, of good faith by, you know, they should have done a lot more because of what you've just said, Maggie, that, you know, they, they, they were in a weaker position, they were completely dependent, and everything was dictated uh, by by the post office. But in relation to a more Traditional commercial relationship, as we can see in the case we're discussing, discussing where indeed, you know, both of them, both parties were sophisticated businessmen. So the good faith here comes on a slightly different Basis, but it's a different in iteration of uh, the need uh, for good faith here. Just because they are at a much more equal relationship does not mean that one party can take it. You can still take, you can still be taken advantage of, even though. Okay. So would you, would you say,
2: therefore, that the content of the good faith obligation uh, would have a, a quite a different uh, description or definition yes, because, it is a because of that quite different relationship yeah i, I have no difficulty yeah. with that it's just simply uh, the basis upon which yeah. it's being implied yeah. uh, you're you're coming at it as as a matter of law and i'm coming at yeah. it as a matter of fact so i think we agree that because the settings are yeah. quite different the content yeah. of what we're talking yeah. about would necessarily be yeah. different and so you could maybe you're agreeing with me now haha ha. oh maybe That's you agreeing. are
1: agreeing with me <laughs>
2: that the label good faith is not terribly helpful. It's just a very simple labeling. You have to dig much further as to what you mean and what you mean may vary Absolutely. greatly from context to context. But as
1: we, you see, I guess that's where my background as a civil lawyer doesn't, you know, I, I don't see the problem because in, 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 in France where, you know, I was uh, partly educated Good faith is not defined. So the reluctance, that is not a problem. Good faith is not defined. In the um American uh, Uniform Code, it's not imply, it's not uh defined in. So now, good, you know, the the fact that good faith is not defined is not a problem, uh, because it pres. But can you see it's a problem to English? I don't laws? know for the si- traditional for laws. for the same reason that it then allows the flexibility for the judges to apply it depending on the context, depending on the need, depending on the relationship. So, no, I don't really. But because we put quite
2: a lot of weight on certainty and. Predictability, yes, so again, I go back to. Uh, it's it's more of a problem for us than it is
1: for, for the or French. It is because of the way English law has developed. And I think that I, the, 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 the point that you made. Uh, when we were discussing the statute so I guess maybe that will explain that in a statute when a statute and uh, uh, something is vague that's not a problem but if it and yet it it seems to be a problem in relation to when there is no statute and therefore when the judges uh, have to apply their yeah. discretion but for me again yeah. being you know looking at it from a pure civil law viewpoint and the you know the comparative uh, contract law modules that we used to teach uh, together i always told my students so on the one hand we see civil law as the judges do not make the law because we don't have the notion of precedent and in the uk in 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 common law jurisdictions such as uh, uh, the uk judges make the law and yet in the in the light of what you've just said maggie there is a reluctance for the judges to agree that they make the law but anyway i'm, I'm you know um going on a slightly different um, directions here.
2: Well, on this particular point, yes, there is reluctance because of the vagueness of the concept and the vagueness as to the types of contracts where it is to be implied. It's those two uh, areas of uncertainty and vagueness, which are creating a problem for us.
1: I think. And yet, if it's done within a statute... Um, that's fine, yeah, that's you see fine but that doesn't make parliament. sense. Parliament may do
2: more or less anything in our constitution. I know, and
1: yet the the, the true value of uh, statutes is their interpretation. They are interpreted by courts. court. So why is there a fear (laughs) of going... Because interpretation is
2: not creation. Oh, is
1: it not? Oh, well, maybe we have. We can have no. another. Oh, uh, okay. No. Well, that sounds <laughs> yeah, like another
0: whole I other don't. podcast coming up I here don't. on interpretation, construction. <laughs> oh, the, my goodness me!
2: So we're, I, we're agreeing to disagree.
1: I think on that very
0: slide. I think we've got more... that.
1: Yeah. We probably have more in common to when we... That's good. (laughs) Well, that was
0: better than my summary. So I I was probably going to summarise this as, you know, we we can agree that possibly somewhere there might be room for an implied duty of good (laughs) faith in law, but one thing's for sure, this ain't (laughs) it. Ah no, no. (laughs) Okay, even that one, even that one failed. Right on that note, I th- I think we're going to wrap it up there because this could might go on, but we will be back, and I don't think this is the last time we're going to be debating good faith. It was good fun. The question is, is this podcast still a joint venture?
2: Ah, of course it is. Of course, of course it, is. it is. Excellent. We are constantly exercising good I would we say are. so
0: too. On on that yeah. bombshell. Thank you very much for listening. Do contact us at. Unpacking.contract.law at gmail.com and well, enjoy the rest of your day, hopefully in good faith. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.